on Saturday morning, February the 1st of 2003, many of you may, be, may remember that the uh, Space Shuttle Columbia, 16 minutes before it was scheduled to touch down again, uh, exploded in midair, killing all seven astronauts aboard. Two of them, a man named Michael Anderson and another man named Rick Husband, were both Christians. Less than 12 hours after that incident, uh, contemporary singer Steve Green was scheduled to do a concert uh, at a Baptist church in uh, Cary, North Carolina. He happened to be a good friend of Rick Husband's and he told about uh, their relationship, how it developed. He talked about various aspects of this man, Rick's character. And then he challenged the congregation with one particular story. <clears throat> he said, I, I know how, how busy these astronauts are, he said. Uh, so I was particularly struck by the commitment of, of this man, Rick Husband, to intentionally discipling his children. The trip was to last 17 days and apparently he had two children. Apparently he left with each one of his kids 17 videotaped sessions of personal devotions. So that one day for each of the day that the father would be gone, each child could still continue to have a personal devotional time with their father. Of course they had no idea that they would not see him again. And I thought to myself, far more than any money or anything else that they could ever inherit, those videotapes will probably be the most treasured possession throughout their whole lives, representing an incredible legacy far more valuable than money and resources. In many ways, throughout this whole capital campaign, I have been reminding you of the fact that in this invitation to a spiritual process, that it's a lot more than money. It has to do basically with what I have called unleashing our potential. Our potential for redemptive impact in this community and to the uttermost corners of the earth. And as a consequence of that, leaving a legacy as well. In the first five messages, I've been focusing more on the unleashing our potential part. Today, in the sixth message in this series, I want to talk about the leaving a legacy dimension of it. A legacy that's far more valuable than just money. And therefore, in one sense, not exclusively, but in one sense, a significant portion of this message is directed to those of us who might consider ourselves at the older end of the spectrum. Certainly well into that spectrum that I am in right now. Although, judging by the feedback, three different people gave me feedback last night. Uh, it also helped me to see that the message has a lot more relevance to a younger generation as well, and I will come to that near the end. But basically, I'm speaking to those of us who are at the other side <coughs> of, of, of 50, say, uh, and who need to be thinking a lot more significantly about this. But before I do that, since Father's Day today, I want to speak, before I go to the macro dimensions of the community dimensions of leaving a legacy, I want to just for a few more, few minutes, pause to think about the, the more, the narrower dimensions within families <coughs> where parents and especially fathers today are called to leave that legacy. Now, when you listen to a story like, like that of Rick Husband, some of, for some of us fathers, <coughs> that can come to us as a tremendous encouragement and reinforcement to just continue doing what we are already doing <coughs> and leaving a good legacy. Other fathers, it might come more as uh, a reminder of their own failures, uh, wistfully hoping that they could wind back the clock, uh, but not able to do so, and probably somewhere in between. Now, but on the other hand, while all of us are not fathers, every one of us have had or do have fathers. And so we also listen to a story like that as children. <clears throat> and for some of us as children, that story of Rick Husband's commitment to discipling his fathers fills us with gratitude for our own fathers. <clears throat> for, the, for the way they have worked that out in our lives. But for other children, at the opposite end of the spectrum, it might fill them with shame, it might fill them with disappointment, and for others it may just be a matter of neutrality. So you see, we sit all across the spectrum <clears throat> when it comes to this issue of 
how we are feeling as fathers and children on this Father's Day. So will you allow me to take a few minutes to just simply lead you and pray for you. Father, we have celebrated in, in, in magnificent song and in creedal statements your great and undying faithfulness and fatherhood to us. But Lord Jesus, I, I am acutely aware of the fact that to get that truth from the head to the heart is another story altogether. And many, many, many have vainly tried to affirm those truths and have still been left unsatisfied and needy on the inside. And so I remind you this morning, Lord, of your own words. When through the Apostle Paul you said, in the fullness of time God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, and then to give us a spirit of sonship by which we cry, Abba, Father. And so it would seem, Lord, that you yourself have said that unless the spirit comes into our life, we cannot cry out, Father. And so I ask this morning for a fresh pouring out of the Spirit of, of God. Pour that Spirit into our hearts, Father, that we might cry out, Abba, Father, and fully experience the comfort of the truth that we know in our heads. We cannot do this by ourselves. Otherwise, you would not have needed to send the Holy Spirit. We can't psych ourselves into it. We can't persuade other people that this is the way they should feel. And so we lay ourselves bare before you and I lift up those in this congregation, particularly those, Father, who have not had good experiences with their own fathers and who have a void in their lives and who today might be feeling anguish, sorrow, resentment, even hatred in some cases. I ask that you will break the bondage of those things. I pray that by the Spirit of God you will enable them to cry out, Abba, Father, and be fully satisfied and give them the freedom to bless their fathers who should have blessed them. We ask that your work of redemption will go that far. And for us who are fathers, Lord, we again, for as many days as you leave us here on this earth, we embrace afresh the commitment to keep on giving that kind of a, a relational, warm, loving legacy to our children that is far more important than any money or things or possessions that we could ever leave with. We are not sufficient for these things. So God, as fathers, we are frail men. As fathers, we fail. We fail in our marriages. We fail in our relationship with our children. We, uh, we humble ourselves before you this morning. And pray that you may pour out that same Holy Spirit of God into our hearts. That by the Spirit, we may carry out this task of transmitting our faith to the next generation. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's, let's talk about leaving a legacy. <coughs> King David is known to most of us as Christians as a man who is after God's own heart. A man who sought after God passionately. The author of dozens and dozens of those psalms that <clears throat> have helped us cry out to God in difficult times. And in good times. But at this stage in my life, another, another dimension of David's life is becoming at least as important if not more. <clears throat> and those were incidents related to David near the end of his life. <clears throat> you see, David at one point, after he had built a great palace for himself, decided to build this magnificent temple for God. And Nathan the prophet came to him and said, no, you're not going to build it, but your son is going to build it. Well, well David didn't get upset about that. He just decided to do what he could. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 5, we read these words. 
David said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in the sight of all nations. Therefore, I will make preparations for it. So, David made extensive preparations before his death. I want to focus on that word. David made extensive preparations before his death. What did he do? For example, if you look at the remaining chapters after 1 Chronicles 22, he structured the worship teams, not just four or five like in our church, but hundreds, thousands of them had to be structured. The Levites and all of the priests, he did that. He organized the whole military. He drew up all the detailed building plans for the temple. He provided the finances himself. And then he exhorted the people to continue to follow his example. He spent all of his time. These were the extensive preparations that David did. And he exhorted the people this way in First Chronicles 29. <clears throat> then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. With all my resources I have provided for the temple of my God. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures. Now, who is willing to consecrate himself to the Lord? He was a man who was willing to work near the end of his life, to put in efforts of time, energy and money for a project that would outlast him and that's from which he would get no personal benefit because of his focus on the next generation. And by the way, this attitude was so important that God made sure that the Israelites and subsequent generations would not forget this attitude of David. So he built it right into their worship manual. For in Psalm 132, which is one of the Psalms of Ascent, when they sang as they moved towards Jerusalem three times a year, Psalm 132 says this, O Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured. He swore an oath to the Lord and made a vow to the Mighty One of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes and no slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Mighty One of Jacob. Of course, this is not literal. It took him seven years to build, or many years to build the temple. Obviously, he slept during that time. The, the point, this is a, a poetical metaphor for zeal. David didn't just make all these preparations by saying, ah, too bad, I didn't get to build, build that temple. Too bad, I'm going to get nothing out of it. Too bad I have to do this for another generation. He didn't just make all those extensive preparations reluctantly. He did it with tremendous zeal and enthusiasm. And he embraced all the hardships. And the Israelites were told never to forget the zeal of David. And because of his zeal, because of his zeal and his willingness right till the end of his life to invest time, energy and resources on a project that would outlast him and from which he would get no direct personal benefit himself, the glory of God came upon that temple and the nations were impacted because of it. For if you continue reading in Far Chronicles, you will find that Solomon did build the temple using all of the resources that David had supplied. The glory of God came and filled the temple after he prayed his prayer of dedication. And the next chapters tell us about how the queen of Sheba came and gave glory to God and kings came from all over to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. That's why this, this dimension of David's life is becoming increasingly fundamental in my life. To, to continue to work, to put energy, time, money and resources for things that I will not get direct personal benefit from but that are going to outlast me. So in this call to have this mindset of leaving a legacy, I wanted to begin with King David. But I also want to talk about a couple of challenges, what I call challenges to a David heart. What gets in the way of this? You see, if, if for example, in this uh, triple kingdom initiative that we are on right now, if in this kingdom consolidation part of it, 
we were going to be building a whole new sanctuary. That every single person here would get direct benefit from their investment of time, money, because 40 or 45 times a year that you come to worship, you'll be in that place. But it's not going to be so. In fact, if you jump ahead to two to three years when our building will be completely finished, guess what? This is going to look exactly the same. You've already got your blue chairs and your carpet. You don't get anything more. So those of us who are adults, as it were, and who don't have any children, we're not going to get any direct personal benefit or experience from the whatever we invest in this capital campaign. Those of us who have children and grandchildren who are grown up and gone out from here, even our extended family is not going to get any direct benefit from this. And as far as the kingdom expansion part of our investment is concerned, which is providing a facility for Vaughan, there's only 60 or 70 people from here that are going to Vaughan. So the rest of us are not going to get any direct benefit from that. And a very small number of us may have children, like I have, who are going there. Most of us, our children are not going to be going there. So we don't get indirect benefit from it either. And as far as kingdom leadership development is concerned, and the investment in the building of the Balance University in, in Calgary, the bulk of us are not going to have sons and daughters who are going to be studying there. Therefore, every dimension of this kingdom initiative for which this capital campaign is geared is something for most of us are not going to get a direct benefit from it. Therefore, there is a real danger of a what's-in-it-for-me mentality that can get in the way of functioning like King David. And so we need, we need a corporate model from the scriptures to counter this particular mindset. And it comes from a surprising place in the scriptures, a part that many of us may not normally think about devotionally. For when Moses led his people out of Egypt into the promised land, they fought some battles outside the promised land on the other side of the Jordan called the Transjordan. And after they had defeated some of the kings, Moses gave some territory to two and a half tribes, to the tribe of Reuben, to the tribe of Gad, and to the tribe of Manasseh, half tribe of Manasseh. But he also told them this. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you? The Lord your God is giving you rest and has granted you this land, this land on the other side. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan. But all your fighting men fully armed must cross over ahead of your brothers. You are to help your brothers until the Lord gives them rest as he has done for you. And until they too have taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. In other words, these people did not say when Moses told them, well, what do you mean? What do you mean we have to go over and fight with them? You just told us this land is ours. Our wives are here. Our children are here. You're not going to let us settle here? We're going to go over and fight there? What if I die? I won't even be able to come back to my wife and my children. They didn't say that. They didn't say that. They thought of themselves as a community of faith. And just the fact that they were okay and their wives were okay and their children were okay did not mean that they did not have to go over and fight at the risk of their lives for the rest of the community to get what they got as well. That's the mindset that will defeat the what's in it for me mentality. The Transjordan tribes, Moses warned them explicitly about that. <coughs> and this too, God inspired them to put into their worship calendar so they would never forget. For in another one of the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 122, we read these words. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Why were they happy to go to church? <laughs> because it was a difficult journey. It's easy to come to Rexdale here most days. They had to climb a difficult, treacherous journey to Jerusalem. 
Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. And here's another one of the reasons they were happy. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord. As one tribe was coming from the south towards the temple, they were conscious of the fact that as they got closer and closer, other tribes were streaming from all over Israel and they would all meet together in joyful worship. That community dimension of worship was critically important. They were never allowed for their worship experiences to become a privatized experience. It was reinforced at the end of the psalm. This is the way the psalm ends. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. They prayed for Jerusalem. They blessed Jerusalem. They sought the peace of Jerusalem, not just for themselves, but for brothers, for friends, and for the entire community of people. Let me give you a couple of up-to-date illustrations of this. <clears throat> Our son Vijay went to Queen's University. And when he went there, he attended a church called Bethel Church, Associated Gospel Church. <clears throat> the pastor of that church was a man named uh, Doug Martin. And Doug told us how when he was young and he was influenced in a university, and in university days, he, one of his prayers was that God would allow him to minister to university students. And God had given him that privilege at Bethel. Now the... Now the Regular congregation at Bethel was fairly small. Those, and, and the relatively older people in the congregation. But the bulk of their congregation was made up of university students. And guess what? They would come in for nine months and then leave for four months. And then they'd do that for four years and they'd leave permanently. And of course, being students, they probably didn't have too much money to give. Most of the financing of this came from the older people. So here they were in a very unique situation where a relatively smaller group of relatively older people were carrying the burden of all the finances and the people who were getting the benefit were mostly the younger people who didn't give much money and didn't stay after three or four years. You could excuse the people like that for maybe wondering. In fact, they reached the stage in the history of their church where they had to make a decision. There came an opportunity for them to sell that church, liquidate the resources because it was on prime property, and move to some other place that was much more comfortable, build a better facility, and consolidate the congregation. But to the credit of the pastor and the older people in the congregation, they said, no, we're not going to do that. We are going to continue to accept the mandate to invest here. You know what? You and I should be glad they did. Because my son got his passion for leading worship in that church. He connected with many, many people from Queens, many of whom are here, who have been leading in worship, and half of them, of course, the leadership team has come from that place. And you know, when I wrote this part of the sermon, I couldn't ima- help imagine this scene. It may not happen exactly this way, but I imagined heaven. <laughs> I imagined Mr. and Mrs. Joe Smith from Bethel Church standing in front of Jesus, you know, thinking they really didn't have much to offer. They labored in a small church, didn't really have, wasn't a spectacular church, wasn't ever written up in any leadership magazines or whatever. And then there's Jesus looking at them and saying, see that group over there? Oh, that's that much better known church, Rexdale Alliance Church. (laughs) Do you know who I used to revitalize some of the worship of that church? Do you know whom I used to lead from there to a church called Vaughan? Some of those university students that came to your church. And I'm so glad you didn't focus upon yourself. I'm so glad you were committed to save, to building a legacy for children, for sons and daughters that were not your own, who would go to churches not your own, who would bless denominations that were not your own. And I'm so thankful for Doug Martin and for his team. That, that's the kind of Transjordan mentality I'm talking about. Let me give you another illustration. I mentioned to you this friend, this man Bob Russell, um, pastoring that church that grew from 125 to 18,040 years. In that same sermon that he preached at district conference that so 
blessed my heart. He gave another example. As part of this transition in their church, as you would expect, their worship transition changed from very traditional to very contemporary. Much like when Steve Heathcock came here and from 1997 to 2000 transitioned our worship. And at one particular point during this transition, one of the older members of his congregation went up to one of the elders and making it quite obvious and plain that he didn't like what was going on, said, what do you think of all this music? I will never forget the response of the elder. You know what the elder said? He said, I don't like the music. I don't like the music at all. He said, but see all those young people there? See how they're worshipping Jesus? I like them a lot more than I don't like the music. (laughs) That's a trans-Jordan mentality. And by the way, I want to take this moment to thank those of you in that older generation who throughout this transition of worship have behaved like that elder. Maybe you have not liked some of it, but you've loved the young people in our congregation and you've blessed them. And you've accepted him. I want to say thank you for that. That's a beautiful example of leaving that kind of a legacy. <clears throat> so that's how we counter mindset number one. The challenge to become like David. And to build, invest time, energy and resources in building something that will outlast us. And for, of which we will never be a part. We need that trans-Jordan mentality. Now there's a second danger. The second challenge is what I call the Freedom 55 mentality. This is far more devastating than the first one. You know why? Because those of us who may have capitulated to that first challenge or that first danger of what's in it for me, at least if you put before them a challenge where something is in it for them, they will rise to the occasion. So to use our current illustration, if indeed we were to build a sanctuary that would bless them, maybe they'd get involved. The second group won't get involved no matter what. Because this mindset is, I've paid my dues, I've done my work, I'm looking forward to an easy retirement, Don't bother me with being visionary. I don't have time to be visionary anymore. We need a biblical model to conquer this mindset as well. And it comes from an 85 year old man in the Bible. His name is Caleb. When God first brought the Israelites to the promised land. He sent 12 spies into that land. And they came back and 10 of them said... Well, two of them, Caleb and Joshua said, yeah, there are giants in the land, but it's a good land. Let's go in and take possession of the land. The other ten said, what? Big giants, can't do it. We're like grasshoppers, so let's stone Moses and go back to Egypt. Well, they hung around for 40 years in the wilderness. (laughs) And then finally under Joshua, they take possession of the land. And here's what Caleb says. Now the men of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal and Caleb said to him, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me to explore the land. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. If I want to translate it in the vernacular, Caleb is basically saying to him, Joshua, when you're allotting the land to us, I don't want a seaside resort in the most comfortable part of Palestine. Give me the hill country because I'm not going to coast. I'm going to fight. 
That's the mentality that will overcome the Freedom 55 mentality. It is, it is what I have called a no easy retirement. Notice I didn't say no retirement. I said no easy retirement mentality. Do you remember the story of the man in the Bible where Jesus talked about him that he, he had barns and his barns were full. He was a good farmer. <laughs> and he said, oh, I've got a lot more stuff to put in my barns. My barns aren't big enough. So he tore down the barns, built even bigger barns, filled them all up. And then come those devastating words. He said, now I can say to my soul, soul, you have lots of good things laid up. Now sit back, relax, eat, drink and be merry. And Jesus said, you're a fool. Now, he wasn't insulting. Jesus wasn't in the habit of insulting people. When the Bible calls somebody a fool, they don't really, it's not an insulting word at all. Because you see, a fool in the Bible is somebody who just leaves God out of the picture. That's all. So Jesus was not calling this man a fool because he was a good farmer. And that he had good crops. He wasn't even calling him a fool because he knew how to build big barns and store them. He called him a fool because he left God out of the picture. He was a man who put his life on cruise control of ease and comfort when the future was concerned. And he stands in stark contrast to the Caleb's in the Bible. And really for those of us who are nearing that end of the spectrum, that's what we need to think about. Am I going to be like Caleb or am I going to be like that man whom Jesus called a fool? I have made my choice. Now don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. There are days when I'm quite tempted to think about an easy retirement. This Friday was one of those days. It happens periodically. I never find myself saying, oh, I'm looking forward to not preaching again. There's lots of other things about church that I find myself saying, oh, that'd be nice if I never had to do that again. But it doesn't last. It doesn't last because I'm jerked back to something like this that John Piper wrote. He said, how many Christians set their sights on a Sabbath evening of life, resting, playing, traveling, the world's substitute for heaven. The mindset is that we must reward ourselves in this life for the long years of labor. Eternal rest and joy after death is an irrelevant consideration. What a strange reward for a Christian to set his or her sights on. 20 years of leisure while living in the midst of these last days of infinite consequence for millions of unreached people? What a tragic way to finish the last lap before entering the presence of the king who finished his so differently. The cross is at the center of our lives and Jesus went to his father straight from the cross. What a tragic way to finish the last lap before entering the presence of the king who finished his so differently. If we're Christians... We have no choice but to retire like Caleb's and not like that fool in the Bible. So, so fellow 55 pluses, our young people are looking for people today who want to live like Caleb's. Our young people are looking for men and women who will say, I have conquered the what's in it for me challenge. And I'm ready to work, labor, and invest for things that I myself will never get the benefit from, but for the sake of the next generation. They're looking for men and women who have conquered the second challenge and have gone beyond the Freedom 55 mentality and are saying, look, we'll conquer the hill country. Not too long ago, a few weeks ago, in fact, Sham and I were uh, invited by a young couple who are in their 20s, two young children, live up north someplace. They used to be in this church for a few years. 
still invited us over for, <coughs> for dinner. And so we drove up and we had a beautiful evening. And uh, they talked about some of the things they'd learned while they were here and, and made some kind remarks about our, our influence in their life. And then she said something like this. <coughs> she said, Pastor Sundar, and they're up to here working in the church. She said, we're, gonna, we're not complaining, we're not complaining. We're going to plug along faithfully. She said, but I find myself asking, where are the older men and women who are willing to come alongside us? Who are willing to whisper into my ear, well done, keep going, and give me that energy. And I recounted to her this passage from John Piper with tears in my eyes, and I said, we'll do the best we can. They are looking. They are looking for men and women who will live like this. They are looking for people who will leave them a legacy. A legacy that is risk-taking, advancing in the face of uncertainty, sustained by joy in the glory of Christ and faith in His promises of a kingdom heart. So I'm saying to those of you who are in that position, when that's life stage, along with me, to the extent that we have capitulated to that first mindset of the what's in it peace mindset, let's conquer it with the mindset of King David. Let's conquer it with the mindset of the Transjordan tribes. And let us be willing to invest time, money, energy, resources into something that we will not personally not benefit from, which is precisely the nature of the challenge before us. And for those of us who might have capitulated to that, no, to that uh, Freedom 55 mentality, Let's say, no, I want to live like Caleb. And by the way, this, it is at this point that I got feedback last night from people that tells me this applies to more than just those of us who are the older end of the spectrum. One man in his 40s came to me and he said, he said, as I'm trying to mentor some young men, I'm discovering that they are becoming enslaved by the Freedom 55 mentality in their 25 years age. Because that's what the society is telling them, begin to think like that. And so many of us become Freedom 55ers because we bought into that at the age of 25. Rather than, bring it, rather than buy, buy into the mindset of Caleb. And that's the other feedback I got. There's a family that I know quite well that was in the church with their children. And I was out for dinner with them afterwards. And their 12-year-old asked them, asked, apparently asked her dad, when I read this quote, she said, why can't I be like Caleb now? Wow. Wow. That's the other end of the spectrum. So those of you who are younger, you make a determination and say, I'm not buying into that Watson and Oh, and then I got a call from someone in their 20s. And they said, oh, pastor, you should tell us too because many of my colleagues are already into the I have paid my dues mentality. So, so here is a 40-year-old, a 29-year-old, and a 12-year-old that is telling me, speak to us, this message applies to us as well. So it was, it was a broader implication that I even knew about. <clears throat> Let me close with this story. I've said before you so far the positive motivations to get involved and leave a legacy to the next generation. To leave them a legacy in this congregation of a debt-free building that provides them the space and the tools and the resources needed to impact our community, especially the youth and the children for decades to come. To leave our people in Vaughan a debt-free facility so they don't have to worry about AMC and other such theaters so they can carry out their evangelism strategy. A debt-free Bible college and seminary in Calgary so people can be trained to be pastors, to be businessmen and businesswomen as well. That's the positive. But I learned something a few years ago from a bank executive in our church. He said, he said, you know, we discovered something recently that when things are going well, the benefits of change don't motivate people. They motivate people when things are not going well. But when things are going well, the benefits of change alone do not motivate as much as the cost of not changing. 
So I want to close this sermon by telling you about the cost of not accepting this challenge. The cost of not having the mindset of David and leaving a legacy. Irwin McManus in his book Seizing the Divine Moment talks about a time he said, I was walking through downtown Atlanta with two people from my church in Los Angeles. It was cold and most the streets were empty and most people were indoors. He said, but as we looked down one of the streets, there was a long line of hip 20-year-olds. And so he said, we were curious to see where they were all going. So as they followed the line, they, he said, we were led to an old but uniquely designed building. It was obviously packed and had a large crowd waiting to get in. It was a jazz blues club. He said, the vibrancy and the distinct menu of the music seemed to be a magnet for the young urban professionals. I said, and then I saw an old sign that gave me a glimpse into the past. It was a former Southern Baptist church. But more than that, it was the former facility of a congregation that had invited me to consider becoming their pastor more than 10 years ago. He said, and when I read through their strategic plan for the future, it was clear that, it was clear that all they wanted to do was to hold on to the past. Even with such a prime location, they were unable to forge a new future. Without question, the congregation had had a great and a memorable past. It would never have crossed their minds that there would be a day that the congregational life would come to an end and the church would become a jazz club. Like thousands of other congregations in the Western world, they held so tightly to what they had in the past that they could not open their hands and eyes to see what was yet to come. And Bob Russell, in that same memorable sermon that I heard three weeks ago, said these words, Death comes when memories from the past supersede a vision for the future. That's the cost, folks, if we do not embrace this vision to leave a legacy to the next generation. As the worship team comes now and, and closes, let's look back again to him who has called us to leave this legacy. I want to bless uh, two groups separately. For those of us who would consider ourselves at the Caleb end of the spectrum, and there are many of you represented here today in the front, my blessing for you is that God will give you that kind of a heart that looks at the next generation and says, I like them. I like them. Whether they belong to me or not, I like them. That's my blessing for us. And for those of us who are at the other end of the spectrum, or closer to that, and you are represented here too, my blessing for you is that God may give you the kind of Caleb's in your heart that you need to keep you moving. And until that time, may he give you faithfulness to keep on slogging. Go in Jesus' name. Let's celebrate together.